I'm Dan Carell, CEO of the Digital Commerce Alliance, and this is Commerce Code, a bi-weekly digital commerce podcast for leaders in card linking, loyalty and digital marketing, mobile wallets and payments, and financial data. Thanks for joining this running conversation with leaders in the industry. And if you like this podcast, come join us at a Digital Commerce Alliance event. You can learn more at www.digcomall.org. This week on Commerce Code, I'm talking with Jehan Luth from Banyan. Banyan uses item-level receipt data to power commercial and consumer applications for merchants and financial institutions. Jehan is the founder and the CEO of Banyan, and he is a fascinating guy. Uh, His background and training is in computer science, public health epidemiology, and privacy law. He's also got a degree in food science, but I don't think we're going to get into that in this interview. I may have to have him back for the Diners, Drive-Ins, and Dives episode of Commerce Code in the future. Uh, But today we're talking data, data exchange, and data science in this interview. Something that Jehan's got really interesting angles on as a person who's worked with big data sets in healthcare and other fields and has turned his attention to receipt item-level data at Banyan. Now, This conversation is going to pick up a bunch of the themes from a DCA roundtable held in September at the headquarters of TransUnion. That was focused on the evolving data environment, how data can be effectively tokenized, analyzed, and developed to better serve consumers while still protecting their privacy. Uh, Jehan was a part of that conversation, and I'm sure today we'll be unpacking a little of what we learned. These are all important and timely issues, so stay tuned for receipts, insights, and offers a conversation with Jehan Luth of Banyan. This episode of Commerce Code is brought to you by Agio, a global leader in engagement platform technologies that create compelling experiences, foster people connections, and cultivate brand advocates worldwide. With more than 45 years of experience, Agio empowers Fortune 500 companies to deliver extraordinary brand experiences for employees, consumers, channel partners, subscribers, and members. Fueled by a holistic engagement ecosystem across workplace engagement, experiential, social activation, customer loyalty, and digital asset experiences, Agio's mission is inspiring people to achieve more, one interaction, transaction, and experience at a time. Agio. Engagement Unleashed. Jehan, welcome to Commerce Code. Awesome to have you on. We had a great conversation at a DCA roundtable in September about the evolution of data in digital commerce. And really glad that we're having this follow-up conversation because as many questions as that roundtable answered for me, I think in the weeks since I've, I've kind of realized how many more questions it raised about data, how it's used, the future of data, limitations and all that. So uh, I think you're totally the right person to be talking to about this because even though nobody has a crystal ball, Banyan certainly is about as experienced, as capable as any company when it comes to understanding you know, how data works in digital commerce. So I want to start with some basics and then you and I can dive in to some of the more interesting specifics. And maybe we just start with where Banyan sits in the ecosystem of digital commerce and kind of tell me you know, what exactly you guys do for companies. Uh, absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. Banyan sits in a very interesting position and an interesting role. And I typically start off by saying it's really important to know that Banyan doesn't have a horse in the race. And by that, what I mean is we're not a publisher of media. We're not a agency that sources content. We're not a merchant. 
what we really are is a tech platform that wants to make it really easy for merchants of all shapes and sizes to collaborate with banks and fintechs of all shapes and sizes. So super, super simple vision, right? It, in, and I'm sure we'll go deeper in, in today's talk, but the goal is rooted around making it incredibly simple for organizations to collaborate. So if, if you guys are kind of connective tissue, I'm going to, I'm going to oversimplify probably throughout this conversation, but if you guys are connective tissue between merchants on the one hand and then banks and fintechs on the other, Jahan, how did you get in? Did you come in from one angle or another? How did you see this sort of this need or this opportunity? I came at this really differently, actually. I was a, and this is probably a longer story for another time, but I was an epidemiologist that, you know, I'd gone to med school, the whole nine yards. And during my time in that space, we realized that needing consumer permission data was so incredibly important to understanding consumer behavior. And I was looking at this purely from a medical and medicine standpoint, but it turns out it's pretty identical to commerce as well. Knowing what people are buying is incredibly important and able to power new experiences for them. So I often joke that I have not worked at a bank or a retailer <laughs> and yet found myself in the middle of Banyan. So there is the element of outsider thinking that kind of drives us at Banyan where we're building something that's meant to be neutral and connective tissue to both sides. And inevitably, if you come from one side, we've seen that those organizations and platform leans one side, right? So we really want it to be neutral. And I think having a background that's not from the core industry helps with that. That is an amazing biographical detail. I love it. Uh, and further proof of a couple of things. One, DCA members are incredibly interesting people. I've met former Olympians. I've met now an epidemiologist who's running a one of our member companies. So that's one thing. Number two, humans are the ultimate general purpose technology. We can be turned into all kinds of things. We can even go from being epidemiologists to being le leaders in um, fintech. I love your point, though, about the just the I think both the challenge and and also the critical nature of consumer permission data that sits inside both a tech and a regulatory framework, whether it's HIPAA on the one hand and that whole business over on the, that's the health insurance. Well, I won't even say what that stands for because it's silly, but the, that's the privacy re stuff relating to medical data or all of that, this sort of evolving set of expectations around consumer data in the financial world. Amazing. Yeah. And it's often a, it's when people really appreciate that background, you kind of realize the bar at which our data governance principles are built and how we think about the consumer permissioned ecosystem. Because I think there's two really important nuances here, right? The, the first one is if we think about the modern fintech industry, for the most part, it's all powered on consumer permission data, right? There's, if you think of the peer-to-peer -peer payment apps and some of these commerce platforms, the first step in those apps is link your bank account. And the way you do that is by permissioning access to certain applications. And very similar to your point about the HIPAA stuff, which is a really long conversation. But I think the one common thread over there is I've had to stand in front of IRB, which are independent review boards of medical schools, and justify why do we need a certain data element to power a clinical trial of some sort. So we don't take it lightly when it comes to data. 
And to give you like one very specific example, we wanted to make sure we built Banyan in a way that never touches PCI data. So we don't hold cardholder data. We don't touch PII. So we're not taking first names, last names, and like sensitive information. So it's such a different way of building a platform in a in the commerce space, which I think to your point, once people peel the layers of the onion a bit, you kind of see what's really interesting behind the scenes. And briefly, I assume that you're able to do that through like tokenization or some kind of a different approach, right? You guys have got a system set up where you're able to carefully gather what's rich and valuable and not take the PCI data. Correct. Correct. Our our principle is simple. We power only consumer permissioned applications. So the consumer's identity needs to live in the consumer's permissioned application, not with Banyan. So yeah, your bank app, your fintech app, whoever, wherever you opt in, that's the organization that knows your name, last name, et cetera. And they share a anonymized token with us or an ID of some sort that allows us to work. Terrific. Okay. That makes total sense. I have to say on the IRB institutional review board piece. Yeah. Anybody, you know, I think it's natural to be, uh, if people are in the fintech space or, or working inside a big card network or whatever, they'll get, have moments of frustration with the in-house lawyers. But I guess your response to that is you ain't seen nothing yet, right? Because what you got to go through, what you've been through probably makes that seem like child's play. Yes. Uh, the bar is higher in, in medicine for sure. <laughs> as, it prob- as it probably should be. Oh, actually, although, well, that's a separate conversation. But in any event, you guys know a lot about data, how it kind of flows around the ecosystem. And, you know, back to, we had this really rich conversation at the round table uh, in Chicago a few weeks ago. And one of my takeaways is kind of the world is full of data, but only a pretty small fraction of it is really being harnessed to create insight. And there's a lot of potential there. And so that was my sense coming away. I wonder if you feel like, do you feel like that's true? And do you think that that is fixable? Yes, it it definitely is true. And and I would say it's it's probably true more for this channel of commerce than general commerce. And I, I think the proof is in the pudding a bit. You know, when we look at merchant funded rewards or offers ecosystem, you know, the harsh reality is it's not that big of an ecosystem, right? It's we're talking about a couple few billion dollars of, of spend flowing through the pipes. When you compare that to brand funded promotions and rewards and kind of the, even at the merchant, total merchant PL, which includes category level budgets within the retailer, those numbers are in the hundreds of billions of dollars that, that flow. And one of the reasons that is, is the promise of some of the commerce platforms that that started on the bank side or were founded by folks that came from the bank side were around, hey, what if we could harness some of the data from the banks and the fintechs and make that available for the merchants to engage with? But in doing so, they never wondered, what does the merchant need to engage with this channel effectively? Right. If if 99% of a merchant's ad dollars and marketing budget is going to every other channel other than merchant funded rewards, that's that should be a pretty big sign that the tech, the capabilities, the platform isn't supporting the merchant's needs today. So yeah, to answer your question, I think we're scratching the surface of what's possible in, in this channel, because I do think there is a lot of promise and merits in powering and working in the bank and fintech channel, because 
there's a lot of benefits, right? Consumers have to log in. There's security, there's safety in these channels, which other programmatic side don't have. So I think we're scratching the surface, but but there's a lot more work to be done. Can I conjecture or, or toss out an inference, I guess, from what you said, which is that the road to something better, and I feel like, you know, for all the progress that's been made in terms of developing, you know, different approaches in this space, I think there's, everyone agrees that there's plenty that's better down the road. We can continue to innovate, but that the path to something better goes through the perspective and the needs and the budgets and incentives of, the, of merchants mainly or partly, or, I mean, am I, did I hear you right on that? Is that, is that a fair phrasing? Yeah, it, it, it absolutely is. Right. And, and I think if we think about the vast majority of, I would say everyday spend merchants, right? So grocers, convenience stores, drugstores, et cetera, almost all of their marketing budget is coming from their manufacturers. Right. And if this channel cannot support brand funded rather than merchant funded promotions and rewards in a way which, to your point, incentivizes the merchant, not tries to cut them out of it or go around them, you know, but actually brings them in the fold, then we truly have aligned incentives from all parties. Right. So that's that is that is the missing link from our point of view, which you know, we're trying to solve with a tech platform for sure. This reminds me, and in, you know, 20 years of consulting and working with different kinds of big organizations, one of the failure types, I guess, that I see in logic or thinking is often to think of the customer, the buyer of something, product, service, whatever, as kind of just a, a stick person who is rational. In other words, the buyer should want the thing that I have decided they should want because it's good for the following six reasons. And that we tend to um, simplify what the buyer wants in the following way. And I think I'm hearing this in, in your description, which is it's not a single person. It's a bunch of people. And collectively, they're each looking out maybe rationally for their own interests. But, you know, kind of where they sit is where they stand. So in the description you've got, right, you've got brands, you've got merchants, you've got other players in the supply chain, and all of that together results in a sort of a group decision about where to spend marketing dollars and where the incentives are. And it ain't nearly as simple as saying, hey, they should want this because this thing's really good. Yes, I couldn't agree more, right? It, it, it makes a ton of sense, I think, in theory. And But what's really interesting is when rubber meets the road, the incentives are sometimes not aligned between big banks, big fintechs, and big merchants. And one of the things that that unifies it is changing this from a merchant-funded campaign to a brand-funded campaign. To maybe I'll digress just a, for for a second. We we just had our company offsite, and the the first slide I had for like our team was the side by side of the first ever card based payment and the first ever receipt right and it's we we had like a little trivia to take a guess the when did these things happen and it turns out the first receipt is almost goes back to like 3000 bc right, right. It, it's when it, when people could actually start carving in stones you could see that they were carving what did you buy uh, and the first card based payment is not even 100 years old you, you know is is fairly nascent so it just goes to say like this channel has, I mean, I might take a slightly more provocative point of view. This channel was built mostly for the banks. It wasn't really built to grow the merchants 
bottom line. So it's now I think these worlds are colliding a lot more together and we're seeing more innovation. But that's, I think, been one of the big challenges over the last few decades for to truly get merchants to participate in this channel at scale. I love the brief digression, and then I promise I, I will come back to 2023. But it, it's absolutely true, and I know this from another life that you know we think of people you know creating writing, and then they're so they're thinking what write stories or whatever. And that definitely happened, obviously, but it was so they could keep track of stuff. That was the first thing that people did. You could conjecture a little further that therefore the first profession was actually accounting. Uh, that's probably a leap too far. But in any event. Um, for sure, right? Like we use writing to keep track of stuff. It's in a sense the most, it, it, the other way that you could say it, it seems to me, is that if you lost all record keeping functionality, like the last thing that you would let go would be the ability to keep track of stuff, right? Like that is sort of at some level, like the irreducible core of why we write stuff down. So I think that's pretty interesting. Commerce Code is brought to you in part by Vantage Score. Nine of the top 10 banks and over 3,000 leading banks and fintechs use Vantage Score to predict and manage repayment risk. Learn more about the latest advances in credit scoring and how to grow your lending business by leveraging financial inclusion at VantageScore.com. So you guys obviously are in the world of, you know, of that receipt level data and and maybe ironically in light of what I've just said what you've just said it is both super fundamental and also in a sense hard to get to a little bit hidden maybe hard to capture the right data from you know what do you think is going to make a difference there i mean is it that we've got is it a needle in a haystack thing like we've got too much of this information that's why we can't make any sense of it is it that there's not enough data embedded in it to make any kind of use out of it like what's the what's the essential problem I think there's a couple things. There's like a technology one and then a commercial construct one. I, I think from a tech standpoint, it is impractical to expect every bank and fintech or their platform to integrate into every merchant in the country, right? Like that's just absolutely impractical and not feasible for, for everyone. And mostly because bank data, which I'm sure many folks that are listening will know how messy and complicated bank data is, but it's still a standardized data packet, right? There's an ISO standard for transactions. There isn't one for receipts. So the receipt data landscape was way more complicated, which makes it even harder for banks to want to collaborate with retailers at, you know, from a data standpoint. So the solution to that is like you really need a middleware trusted neutral kind of platform where once a merchant plugs in they are able to work with a ton of different publishers and once a publisher plugs in they're able to work with a ton of different merchants right a really really simple construct very similar to the credit bureaus or the payment networks, right? Like a sim simple construct in, in theory. So that's one part. The second part, which is really important, is I, I said this, I think, in my opening line, we don't have a horse in the race. Right? I'm, I'm Banyan will never try and promote a publisher over the other, a merchant over the other, a campaign over the other. It's just that if we do that, it defeats the whole purpose of a neutral platform, right? So 
the the goal of the platform is in a way it's a switzerland architecture that organizations can use and because we don't have a horse in the race it makes it way more compelling for organizations to use this than try and even remotely think about building something in-house or building something directly so that's the technology side of things the commercial construct side of things is the second we talk about skew people think that i'm talking about hundreds of offers showing up in your banking app with like 10 cents off toothpaste that is not what we're talking about right and, and even if we like abstracted five levels higher if you think about like a home improvement retailer a really large home improvement retailer wouldn't they want to promote their lawn and garden aisle in March, right? It's such a simple construct, but you need SKU data to do that. Or a really large QSR chain, wouldn't they want to promote spending money at the restaurants, but the reward excludes the tip? Such a simple construct. Uh, what about a convenience store where the reward excludes purchases of gift cards? such a simple construct so oftentimes when people think skew they think i'm going like trying to build a couponing app within a bank and that's probably the last thing a bank wants or a retailer wants but i would say there's like 100 shades of skew from there all the way to kind of merchant funded offers so that's the commercial construct part and hopefully the tech part made sense couple comments i think this is falls into the category and there's tons of stuff like this in the in the world of corporations the average person on the street would maybe never have thought about it, but I think assumes that all this stuff is just already there. It's just capabilities that there's this sort of, you know, like omnipotence inside every big company and they could easily do all this stuff. And it's, we all know that is so thoroughly not true. But, but I think there's too a sort of a tendency, you know, for us to know our own particular area, right. Of whatever, whatever part of the ecosystem we're in. And so we do tend to assume greater capability outside of wherever we are. Right. And so point being, there's a lot of limitations right now to what can happen. And there's therefore a lot of opportunity to fix that. A, a brief, and we'll come back to that in a second. I'll brief comment on the, uh, you know, back to economic history. I mean, that neutral position that you describe of like, look, we don't have a horse in this race. I mean, that's just a critical and I think will will never go away in the same way that, you know, in order to have a stock exchange, it just starts with a bunch of people saying, hey, let's meet under that tree. But the fact is, it's some pretty quickly you figure out that you need not only a, a location, but that you actually need someone in that system whose job is to actually not care exactly about how, you know, either side of the transaction, but to just be the honest broker in the middle, like you just have to. And so uh, you guys have positioned yourselves there. And I think it's very much needed, but also gives you some great insight into, you know, kind of where things are, which again, like the NYSC or the commodities exchanges in Chicago, you know, they have that too. So on kind of where we're at with data, it feels like we might be at a pivotal moment just with the advance of, of technologies and machine learning and AI and all these kinds of things. Would just love to get your impression overall as to how you see the data ecosystem changing right now, Jehan. Totally. And maybe I'll, I'll go back to my epidemiology days for a, for a second. Back in the in the medical days when, when we were building trials around food as medicine and, you know, these kind of super interesting things, you would think as an epidemiologist, I was like doing the data science to like find causations and correlations, et cetera. Unfortunately, I was spending over 99% of my time 
cleaning data and organizing it so that we could do data science on top of it, right? So the interesting thing about machine learning and like the advent of AI that's that's coming up is at its very core, if you don't have a clean standardized data set, it does not work, right? So the, the, the way we see our role uh, as Banyan in this is there's going to be way more innovation that's going to happen and it's going to trickle into the regulated industries like financial services, like medicine. But when the you know, models start getting deployed more wholesomely, there is going to be a very important governance component on how is the underlying data actually being used. And so I think in that point, there's like, you need clean data. That's number one. So one of the exciting things about Banyan is we ingest data and work with tens of thousands of retailers today but all of that data is standardized into one schema, one taxonomy, right? So that if someone is building a model downstream, they're not building a model to like 10,000 taxonomies, they're building it to ours, right? It's, it's a, that's a really important, important point. And then the second part is without the right governance rules and kind of data policies, this is a very challenging thing for a lot of regulated organizations to even get into. So that's where the no PII, the consumer permissioned approach, all of these things, which five years ago might have seemed seemed like overkill for a tech company, but today seem logical and five years from now is going to be table stakes. I, I think that's that's really important as we're seeing a lot of innovation happen on the data side of things. I do have a, an important thing on the epidemiology front, which is I and I only I'm a simple man. I only need you to tell me one thing, which is that please tell me that you found that the Oreo McFlurry, preferably a large once a day, is the road to longevity. Is that likely true based on what you learned? <laughs> uh, that's, a, that's a highly disputed fact by, by medical researchers. <laughs> I, I needed a little bit of empirical support in order to explain the habit. But in any event, that's my, that's my love song, the Oreo McFlurry. Um, okay, uh, back on the, you know, I mean, it's, I think you're right for what's worth on the, um, the need for I'll call it a safe space in light of the lack of clarity on rules of the road for data and to maybe rephrase it, which is, I don't think we should expect, especially in the United States, but honestly, anywhere, if you really dig down that, that we're going to have great guidance from the lawyers, right? Whether they are government, you know, people making rules or all this kind of stuff. I don't think we're going to have like a perfect clean system. And so what we'll end up doing is having safe private spaces like the one that you've created, I think, that will end up, you know, I think that's essentially what we talked about to a great extent at the roundtable too. It's like, we're all figuring out what the rules of the road are, but then creating, uh, if you will, uh, to take that analogy, you know, safe places to drive around within that, right, that are in a sense privately constructed while we all wait for, you know, the regulatory environment to settle a little bit. I don't know if it'll ever fully settle, right? Because it's complex and constantly changing. So that's that's my two cents on that. But I think it's I think you're barking up the right tree with your approach. I was gonna just pivot to, you know, we we talked about merchants before and and want to think about kind of opportunities. You know, where do you think the biggest if if you're a merchant, you can pick whatever kind you think, but where do you think the big opportunity is right now? And then I'd love to hear you talk about maybe some different sectors too, you know, from the networks or maybe a bank's perspective. I think from from the merchant standpoint, the Obviously, retail media and the growth of the media businesses is not a new initiative, especially I think the larger merchants have been on that journey for years now. So and, and we're seeing a lot of mid-sized merchants starting to see some meaningful scale. The card channel 
for most of these merchants is not part of their retail media channel, right? So I think the big part is getting retailers to appreciate that the card channel can be an extension of their retail media business. But by the way, to do that, they, you know, the card channel needs to give some things in return that makes this channel attractive to retailers, right? And this could be capabilities around identity, capabilities around, you know, offer constructs. So the, the most simple one is enabling brand funded campaigns to be run. So that's that's my big takeaway, I think, of what we're seeing from working with merchants firsthand. Is there a kind of a particular product category or particular space where you think this tends to work best, maybe from the consumer's perspective? Do you have any kind of observations or opinions on that? You know, it's it's a really interesting one because we have seen this work across the board with all merchants and literally right from subscription merchants and e-com to gas stations, right? And the way we look at it as Banyan is we at our very core, an infrastructure company, right? And then the platform enables certain things, right? Like give you an example, exclusions. And I, I brought exclusions up a few minutes back into the context of excluding gift cards under a purchase or excluding tip, right? But if you take that further, there's gas station chains that want to exclude tobacco, right? You know, from campaigns. There's airlines that would like to exclude certain things from their promotional thing. So the reality is like almost every merchant sells high margin items and low margin items. And if they can drive traffic on the higher margin items, this channel becomes more profitable for them. And if they can exclude low or negative margin items, then it is double accretive to, to their bottom line. So that's that's how we've thought about it. That makes a ton of sense. And back to a comment you made earlier about sort of creating the capability to think about this as not just merchant funded, but brand funded, you know, from the, from the get go, I would say when you're talking about merchant funded rewards, because at a, ma at a big picture level, the retail, you know, interface itself is one of the lowest margin places in the total ecosystem in the economy. The underlying profitability isn't really at the merchant level, right? It really is upstream. And we all know, just looking around, like there's certain brands that just have fundamentally higher gross margins like Nike and whatever. And so, you know, and many others. And so there, there's the need to be specific, as you say, to really think about what are the margins here um, so that we can actually have it make sense. And for that, you need better data, right? That's the only way to, make it, only way to do it. I'm going to wrap it up with kind of a question about the the future, right? Just thinking about where we're we're headed. We talked a little bit about where the opportunities and, and this kind of stuff, but I just wonder as you think a couple of years forward, what do you think is going to be different? You know, like what, what do you expect? You know, what have you seen maybe in 2023? I mean, believe it or not, we're 10 months into it, you know, that suggests to you what 24 or 25 might look like, how it might be a little different than before. There's probably two things that we're seeing being, you know, incredibly pronounced. The, the first one is the consumer expectation, right? And the consumers are are expecting more and more from their applications they log into every single day or every week. So at its very core, consumer expectation drives and consumer behavior drives a lot of things uh, downstream. That's that's a really big one. We as Banyan work with many of the, the DCA members, and I would say many of them have joined us and started working with us in 2023. So I think it's only a matter of time before we start seeing 
pretty step change, you know, in what this channel has seen before. And not not some 10% incremental gain, but like a fundamental change in, in the channel, which I think was good is gonna bring more retailers, larger budgets, which in turn means more value to the consumer, which in turn means you know, the cards go top of wallet for the bank, which in turn drives more commerce, which is like the ultimate virtuous circle. So it, it really benefits all if we can all look at each other and say, hey, you know, something needs to change. Consumers changing. The ecosystem is changing. And instead of trying to fight that, let's lean in and, and make this something that's accretive to all. That's true. I love to hear it. You know, changing consumer expectations, first of all, is kind of the, you know, I mean, demand drives supply, right? And so that's just fundamental. But obviously, too, it's uh, fun to hear uh, about projects that uh, DCA members are doing together. And yeah, I mean, that's how innovation works, right? It feels like not much, not much, not much. And then there's this explosion of, you know, there's this harvest, right? That happens, you know, it'll take a few years and then boom, all these changes take place. So sounds like we're uh, looking forward to an exciting 2024 and 25 uh, with you guys, which is awesome. And great to see you in Chicago at the uh, the data roundtable and look forward to seeing you again at a DCA event. Thank you, uh, Jehan, so much for joining us on Commerce Code today. Thank you for having me. Commerce Code is sponsored by Pentadata, the all-in-one financial data API. Whether it is bank account data, credit card transaction data, or credit reports and credit scores, Pentadata has it all in one simple and easy-to-use API. With coverage of over 6,000 banks, over 200 million credit files, and 60 million merchants, you can get all the data you need for your apps at pentadatainc.com. This episode of Commerce Code is coming out on Halloween Day. Now, Halloween in the retail world is, of course, a major event. But after we went through the COVID dip, I thought it was worth revisiting the question of, well, how much do we spend on Halloween? Well, this is all according to the National Retail Federation. And if you want to dig in, you can get a lot more information um, on their website, of course. But the total percentage of people celebrating Halloween across the last six or seven years started at about 72 percent of people who self-reported as observing or celebrating Halloween in 2017. And interestingly, it was dipping from 72 to 70 to 68 in 2019. And then, of course, in 2020, only 58% of people said they were doing something for Halloween. Totally understandable. It rises to 65%, 69%. And then now in 23, 73% of people say that they will do something to acknowledge or celebrate Halloween. That's actually higher than 2017. And I will leave it to you to puzzle over why it might have bounced back even higher than it was before. But the total amount of money, what do we spend on Halloween? 2018, we were at $9 billion. It actually dropped a wee bit in 2019, consistent with fewer people saying they were going to celebrate it in some way. Here's the interesting thing. $8 billion was spent, just a little bit less than the year before in 2020, even though far fewer people said that they were going to observe it. So it looks like the people who stuck with Halloween in 2020 were particularly committed to it because um, they almost held the whole spending level from previous years. But then since then, 21, 22, and 23 are kind of a straight line from $8 billion in spending on Halloween in 2020 to 12.2, an absolute all-time record of spending on the October 31st holiday. I'm not going to sit here and interpret, philosophize, or offer any sociology on the question. I'm just going to give you the data and say, 
we're spending more than we ever have on Halloween. If you're getting dressed up as a ghost or a goblin or a, I don't know, Dick Van Dyke, whatever, um, have fun tonight. Commerce Code is a bi-weekly podcast bringing you conversations with executives who are leading the way in digital commerce. If you like Commerce Code, your company should join the Digital Commerce Alliance and become part of our mission of advancing trade for good through standard setting, industry networking, conferences, and best practice sharing. Check out our website at www.digcomall.org. On behalf of DCA, have a great week.